Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwarzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My guest today is Vamsi Bontala, CEO of Arbor Lodging Partners. He runs a vertically integrated hotel investment and management company. We talk about everything from how he got started in a very non-traditional way as a lawyer coming into the hotel business, buying distressed hotels, scaling a management company, partnering with institutional partners, transitioning from high net worth investors. We even go into his new strategy of converting full service hotels to multifamily. It is a fascinating conversation about a journey of a growing company. Please enjoy my conversation today with Vamsi Bontala. All right, Vamsi, I'm very excited to have you on the podcast. We've been friends for a good bit here, and you have such like an interesting way into real estate and hospitality, actually. It's unique. So I think that would be a very good place to start to tell everyone how you ended up in the hotel business. Yeah, by total accident. <laughs> so That's what yes. I'm saying. <laughs> You know, it's funny. I I always knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, and I figured at some point I would try to do something. I didn't know it would, it would be my like full time job. I thought I'd have like a side gig here or there, or you know, own like a you know like a car wash or something like that. But uh, you know, my story is I was a I was an attorney. I was a private equity attorney working at a major firm in New York and working crazy hours, learning a ton, getting my butt kicked. And, you know, at that age, it was a fun experience, you know, like you living in New York, you work all the time and then you party all the time <laughs> and there's really nothing in between. So to be honest, I got into the business because it was like escapism. I was working 18, 19 hour days. It was crazy. And, you know, when you're working like that, you meet up with your buddies and you just start thinking like, man, what else could we do? It'd be fun to go do something else. And I'm really lucky. My, you know, like one of my absolute best friends, I've known him since high school. We ended up going to college together. He was in New York as well. He was doing investment banking and finance. And we would meet at the bar or grab lunch or dinner. And we would just start talking about like how it would be cool to do something. I, I remember sitting in like a closing room once and this entrepreneur had built this amazing business, sold it to a private equity firm, had this great exit. And I was just like, man, I'd love to do that. That'd be really fun. So, so we were talking about that. And really, we just started looking on the side. He didn't come from the hotel business either. But both of us kind of just knew folks in the business. So it didn't seem like totally exotic. I always joke that 
if a bunch of Indian people did something, you know, I don't know, own balloon shops, we would be selling balloons right now. So it just happened to be something that didn't seem crazy. We saw people doing it. So we figured, hey, you know, maybe it's something we could try. And the thought was always like, let's try to just invest in a deal on the side and we'll keep doing our jobs. I just sort of figured it would be something that could be fun to follow and get some monthly reports on a deal or something like that. And that's all it would be. And so we started to get a lot of momentum. I think, you know, um, the lesson here is like when you're passionate about something, you throw yourself into it. And so what was intended to be like a side gig was so much fun and just like started something inside of me that I didn't even know was there that just doing it as a side gig didn't seem fun. So started thinking about other ways to do it and frankly found a deal that we just like passed the hat around. We had friends and family. I had like partners at my old law firm, clients, random folks invest with us. And we got a first deal done, brought in a third-party management firm. It was intended to just be like, we thought we'd do like a land deal or a retail deal or something and ended up finding this hotel. And so then we got another one under contract and we're like, you know, we're young and neither one of us was married at the time and no kids. So figured let's give it a shot. Worst case scenario, I'll go back to the firm. And that was 17 years ago. So when did you leave the firm? Was it after the first deal or kind of into the second deal? Into the second deal. So obviously my DNA was a lawyer. So everything was risk adjusted. And I was not the guy that was going to just like drop everything with like a little bit of an idea and say, I'm going to figure it out. So my view was I'll do two jobs. I'll work crazy hours until I feel like I've got something to step into. So the second deal, once we got it under contract, we were like, all right, this isn't going to be sustainable. At some point, the partners at my firm are going to be pissed that I've effectively have another job. (laughs) And so figured that I needed to do something a little bit more direct about it. So we were like, let's jump into this and figure it out. And so, you know, I just, I've been a student for the vast majority of my life, worked my butt off, got like the job that you would think you would want, was making really good money. But it just felt like something I I knew at some point in my life I'd have to try. And if it didn't work out, at least then I would know that I'd given it a go. And that's really what motivated me at that time. I think this is a common theme amongst a lot of people out there who are looking for a change, but not a lot of them are actually willing to take the risk. What was it during that first deal that gave you the confidence to say, okay, I want to go be an entrepreneur now. There's something here. And, and what was the deal, by the way? Like, what, what kind of hotel was it? So, well, the very first deal was a piece of land. We thought we were going to be okay. builders. That never happened. So that was a piece of land in Maryland. And one of the guys we were working with came across this piece of land. So we kind of put the deal together. The second deal actually came through the management company. And it was two hotels in Park City, Utah. I had never even been to Utah in my life when we went out there. And obviously now in retrospect, I'm like, what an amazing market, an amazing deal to get access to. Nobody really wanted to touch it. It was a Hampton Inn and a Holiday Inn Express. And the other thing that I think is kind of key, like, look, real estate, it's fun to talk about how you got into stuff, but there's barriers to entry, right? Like you need capital. And the joke I make is... I can prove that there was a great financial crisis because guys like me got a loan. (laughs) And so, you know, no background, hadn't been doing deals. And people were like, yeah, we'll sign up for that. And look, I think we were good credit. We obviously paid off the loan and everything. But I think it was a little bit simpler back then. I think in today's world, you can still do it. Probably may have had to be thoughtful about what kind of partner to bring on or 
somebody with a balance sheet or whatever it is. So it, my guess is you'd have to jump through some different hoops now. And what was your pitch on those two deals to get your friends and family to give you money? I mean, you made the joke. You can't just say, hey, I'm an Indian guy going to go do hotels. Right. <laughs> I don't even know if I could say that, but you said it. So <laughs> I'm going to say it. What, what was your pitch? Because a lot of people I talk to have this chicken and the egg mentality when they're going to look at their first real estate or their second piece of real estate. And it's kind of like, all right, do I raise money now or do I go find the deal and then raise money? What did you guys do for those hotels? Well, we, we certainly found the deal first. In, in that case, we leaned a lot on the management company. They had a portfolio of assets. They were experts in that field. Hotels are obviously an expert-driven field. So we had them do the underwriting. We certainly challenged them and asked questions. In retrospect, probably not enough, right? Just like when you're young, you know, like one of the things that you feel more comfortable about when you get older is you're willing to be the jerk and just ask questions. <laughs> it's a little harder when you're young. And so, but that's really how we got comfortable. I think that's how our investors got comfortable was that, all right, well, at least somebody is driving this bus that knows what they're doing. To be honest, our investors were investing in us. They were investing in me. They were investing in Chenal. And they said as much, right? They were like, we don't know anything about hotels. And frankly, we don't think you know a ton about hotels, but we like you and we think you're going to work really hard and be advocates for us. And so we're willing to do it. It was small money for the, those guys. So I think it was a way of just sort of like, I mean, honestly, I think half of it was, hey, we think it's an interesting investment. I think the other half was like, hey, he's a good dude. Let's help him out. And it was almost like a favor. And I, I'm obviously incredibly appreciative of it. I've got investors from that first syndication that still invest with us today. So really good experience. And uh, and always you always remember, right? Like those first guys who took a bet on you. And I still remember like the first time I got like a meaningful investment. I just remember hanging up the phone and being like, oh my God, like, how did that just happen? Like, this guy is going to like write a pretty decent check. And this is nuts. <laughs> like, he's betting on us. And so, but you take that, like, you have to take that seriously. I mean, even now, I you always have to return people's calls. You always have to be responsive because this is hard-earned money that is being invested in deals. And it doesn't mean you're guaranteeing that it's going to always go well. We've certainly had challenges. But I think the important part is to show that you're at least taking it seriously. And knowing what you know now, thinking back on it, what were some of the questions that you should have asked that management company that was helping you diligence and underwrite the deal? What, what were the questions that thinking back on it, you wanted to ask? Or you would yeah, have asked? look, like definitely asking a lot more about what could go wrong and just being sensitive, not just doing like an Excel exercise and being like, what happens if it goes down 5%, but really questioning like, well, what could go sideways here? And it doesn't have to be as extreme as a COVID. It's not like anybody knew, thought about that. Uh, frankly, no deal would ever happen if we were underwriting COVID into every deal. But I, I think thinking a lot more about what the downside could look like. And look, we are, we're deal guys. At the end of the day, to be forward-looking, you have to think about the positive. If we only thought about the downside, like clearly we would be in the wrong side of the like line of business. But I do think that that I wish I had done more. And I think really it was actually post-deal, like operationally when we were getting reports and they were explaining what happened. 
I, in retrospect, I should have just asked way more questions about like our strategy and why we may have missed a month or why we may have overperformed a month and like what's happening and how could we cut costs. I think when you don't know what you don't know, it's hard to ask questions about stuff unless they're just really general. And that's part of what experience does because now I can be pretty pointed with my team about questions if something isn't going the way we think it should. How did you structure the deal with investors when you raised that first deal? Was it just straight up? Did you have a promote or a little piece of carried interest? How did you do that? Yeah, there was a promote. I don't remember what the terms were, but they were pretty <laughs> pretty nice. <laughs> Not what my definitely better than what I can get out of my institutional investors today, but it, it was a pretty straightforward deal. It was definitely not overly complicated with like multiple levels of waterfall and things like that, that we tend to get today. I think with institutional partners, you have to generate a little bit more return until you get to the waterfall, but there's a lot more upside available versus just like a straight up 20% that I think we did on the first deal. Hotels are the most complicated real estate asset class, in my opinion, and that's because there's an operating business and then you also have the real estate. But you turned that into a opportunity because you essentially leveraged the expertise and the experience of the management company to help you do that. Where if you were buying like an industrial deal, it's more vertically integrated than the hospitality space. And that opportunity might not have been available to you where you can kind of draft behind a pro in the space and the cost wasn't that significant. Absolutely. I think you hit on a bunch of things that that work in hotels and why it was able to work for us. So, you know, for us, we gravitated towards hotels because coming from even though I wasn't like working at a fund, I was work my clients were all private equity funds. All the deals I did were leverage buyouts and same thing with Sheenal, he was coming from that world as well. And we really focused on how do you buy a broken business and fix it? And that's a little bit harder of a thesis to take into an industrial deal or self-storage or something like that, where hotels, given that they are operating businesses, you can, like for a couple of guys that really don't have anything to offer but sweat equity, this was uh, the type of real estate that you could roll up your sleeves and really get into the operations and potentially move the needle in a meaningful way versus, you know, frankly, in some other asset classes where you're really just kind of going with the tide. If rents are up, you're in good shape. If rents are down, you're in bad shape. But there's not a lot you can do. Whereas in a hotel, you could be in a down market and still increase your rev bar if you're really smart about finding the right clientele or positioning yourself at the right type of business. And and so to us, that that was interesting and a good way for for again for people who had no background to segue into the business. So that's also on the operation side, but then on the kind of real estate side. Would you also be looking for, in the early days, broken real estate deals? Like, What time period was this? Was this like during the GFC where you were buying from banks? Yeah, it was just before GFC and then afterwards really kind of cut our teeth during the GFC. So we started in 06. So 06, 07 into 08, I thought I was like the smartest guy in the world. And how hard is this? Like, why do other people think it's difficult? And even <laughs> had a couple of quick exits and thought we were just so cool. And then fall of 08 hits and Lehman goes under and everything just starts melting and rev bars are down like 30, 40%. And I was like, oh man, like this is, this is not good. And so that's actually when we got into the management business. We 
frankly ended up letting go of our management company because we needed to save money. So we, we operated the hotels for free and basically we learned it by fire. So we, we took management in house. We had a couple of hotels at that time and we figured everything out on the go. And that's really kind of how we got into the business and started growing since, uh, from there. And then when things settled down, what, how we grew was we actually bought a lot of distressed debt in 08, or not in 08, sorry, in 09, 2010, even into 2011. And frankly, at that point, that was actually, we were more comfortable with that than buying a hotel because again, we were just cutting our teeth operationally. And so buying a piece of debt and restructuring with a borrower that's heavy on finance and legal was like something we could do at that point. So, and we didn't need to build out a team. That was the two of us doing all that. We were the special servicer. We were managing everything. We found an investor that had been in a couple of our deals and, and backed us. And we went and bought some loans from the FDIC, from banks, from servicers, and for the most part, restructured them and kept the owner in kind of the thesis was these are smaller balance loans, too small for the big guys. And, you know, deals where the owner operator has like 99.9% of their net worth tied in that building. So let's figure out a way that we can restructure and figure something out. And we can get returns without having to build out a, a management company, basically. So did you also have a management company at that time or that part didn't happen yet? And that was future. No, yeah. So we, so we were the management company at that point. We we were managing it. When we you hired, say we, does that mean like the, you and your the partner? Two, yeah, you actually yeah. had people. No, no. Wow. Two of us. Then, like about a year into it, we did hire like an accounting person and like an ops guy, and that's really kind of for a while. It was kind of like the four of us kind of doing everything. And then I'd say probably like around 2011 or so, we really kind of started to ramp up and grow the business from there. And so like, you know, like a lot of small businesses, it starts with like one individual doing everything. And then that might become two people that kind of split the portfolio of work. And then you just kind of keep multiplying and the work becomes more and more specialized. And so in those early days, uh, our ops guy was doing accounting, was doing HR, was doing everything and sales. And then at some point you figure out that like, hey, we're generating enough revenue, we can hire another person. And then we brought on somebody to specifically do, I forget what it was, it may have been sales or something like that. And so we slowly kind of just grew from there. You know, like today we have 40 people at corporate and everybody, you know, we have accounting, HR, sales, even within HR, we have generalists, we have recruiting, within sales, we have different segments, we have revenue management. So like you... It's just like with scale, you can start doing all of those things, which is which is great because now we just have like such rock stars on the team, which uh, I would not claim I was a rock star uh, 15 years ago. <laughs> That's amazing. So when you kicked the other management company out on that early deal and decided to take it over, you know, typical management fees are like three or 4%. So like maybe there was a cost saving element, but I'm guessing there had to have been something that you were seeing like we can do this better because you then clearly started your own management yeah, company to yeah, be vertically integrated. For sure. A little bit of both, right? The cost saving was huge. That was at that point, you know, it was, it was a scary time just to be honest, right? And so any penny you could save was really important. And obviously we had investors that were kind of like trying to figure out what we were going to do to help save investments. And you sort of at that stage, you feel like, this is how I can show that that I'm worthy of their investment. I need to like step out and, and do this. 
but we certainly also know that nobody's going to take care of your stuff like yourself. And frankly, when you get to a certain size, I mean, there's certain owners out there that agree with that, but they're at such a scale that they have to have a management company. Like, you know, you know, Barry Sternlicht can't manage every asset by himself, even though he probably could do a pretty good job of creating value at the asset if he showed up. And so I think for us at that scale, we could do that. We could be the guys that got our hands dirty and were there. I remember we had a GM that gave us notice and we flew down and stepped in at the property for a few days until we were able to get like some sort of like task force person in or something like that. So at that time, that's sort of what I think is expected of you if you're an entrepreneur and you've got a small platform. And once we got into it and we started like stabilizing and we actually started paying ourselves some fees and things like that, obviously at that point you start to realize like, Hey, there's a real business here. We're getting better at it. We're starting to get really good at this. And if somebody else is like, somebody's got to get paid for this. And frankly, we might as well be the ones doing it because we think we can do a better job. And that really resonated with our investors too, because they started to be like, well, vertically integrated makes a lot of sense for us. We like that you guys are getting yourselves in there. And frankly, you can't hide when you're vertically integrated. Like One of the benefits of having a third-party operator is you can be like, man, that guy really screwed up last (laughs) month, but I can't do that anymore. I got to get on the call directly and kind of own up to everything. So did you start getting institutional partners when you really had a vertically integrated platform and that was something that they were able to latch on to? Yeah, definitely. I think that was really important for them to see that we were bringing that expertise from beginning to end. And I think they also liked the way we were structured because the two co-founders of the business were running each vertical. And so, you know, Sheenal runs the management company. And I think that that was important for investors to see that there was real skin in the game because obviously as the the sponsors of the deal were investing in the deal. We're putting ourselves out there. And then we're also being active managers, not just hiring out the responsibilities. I think investors liked seeing that. A lot of real estate investors and specifically hospitality investors start out with their first deal in their backyard. You're based in Chicago. Your first deal was in Park City in Utah. So how has that shaped your philosophy in terms of growing your investment portfolio and your operating portfolio, learning how to manage from afar? What what are the key things that you have taken away from that experience? Yeah, it's a good question. And so when we started the business, I am in Chicago now, but we were in New York. And I think part of I totally get the know your backyard and be an expert and all that stuff. Like that, that there's not a lot to argue with there. I think for us in New York, it was not a market we could really break into given who, like how we were structured at that time. And so I think we were almost forced to look outside of New York, which was healthy and was good because then we started saying, well, if we're not looking in our backyard, what's the difference? Like if it's three hours away or five hours away or whatever it is. And we had a management company. So we also were obviously leaning on them. It's not like at that time we were intending to do everything ourselves, but the lesson that's learned is, I think, two parts. So depending on your asset class, I think like a lot of multifamily folks, and we're in that, they have deep enough markets that they could just focus on like their home market or like markets within like two or three hour radius. And they can stay super busy and they can do deals at like real volume of real size. They can build, they can buy. 
but you don't necessarily find that in a hotel. And so I don't know if I knew that at the time. I certainly now know it in retrospect. But I think if you want to build a certain scale in a hotel, you have to go national because it is difficult to just want to own every single hotel in your market. It's a lot of exposure. There's only so many that you want to own in that market anyway. I think at the end of the day, you tend to focus just on high quality markets and say, well, if it's here or if it's in another part of the country, that's okay. And and frankly, I think like, you know, for hotels, it makes sense. Maybe you don't need to do that in other asset classes. And the lesson learned was, given that we have kind of like a command and control style of like a headquarters office and assets at this point, I think we're in like 30 different markets. You got to be like really on top of your policies and procedures and SOPs and all that kind of stuff and supporting folks on the ground because there has to be process to all of it. Because if it's just like, hey, call me when you feel like it, we'll figure it out. It gets really difficult to do that at scale and when it's spread out. But the other lesson that's learned too is that nothing beats eyes on the property. And so the benefit you have when it's in your backyard is that you might be like on your way back from Target and you're like, I'm going to pull into the hotel just to see how everything's going. Yeah, obviously you can't do that now. But so you have to be so much more deliberate about it, both, I think, and even now, I think it's one thing to have your team go out there. I think it's one thing for even Sheenal and me to go. And I think that it's important for us to not just, you know, it's sort of like a trust but verify thing. I think we believe in our team. We have a great team and we have like really great systems in place. But we've made a, a much bigger effort to make sure that we're constantly getting to our properties, especially after COVID when we, we weren't able to go to them, that you just pick up so much more when you're there. And it seems like your strategy during 10, 11 was this distressed debt strategy. How do you and your partner figure out what deals you're going to focus on, what markets you're going to focus on, and what types of investments you're going to make in the hospitality space? Is that something that's constantly evolving? Or do you guys have a structure every quarter? What, what does that look like? It's constantly involving with structure. <laughs> so, you know, we're lucky now we've got a great acquisitions team. So we obviously work in conjunction with them as well. And, you know, in November, December, I tasked them to say, let's look at 23. Here are a couple of ideas I have. I want to hear some of your ideas and let's put together a strategy on where we think the opportunity is, not just in 23, but over the next few years. And we do that a lot, but I'd say the main reason I really made a focus of it this time was it felt like with what's happening with interest rates that we are entering a new cycle. And when there's a new cycle, there's different phases of that cycle. And you want to be thoughtful about playing where the opportunity is at different times and also looking ahead as to like how to pivot. And so we, we think it's super that there needs to be an arbor point of view on deals even though we don't have a discretionary capital fund, we partner with outside capital and all of our deals. We don't want to be viewed as just like a way to get to a deal. At the end of the day, the reason the business grows and the, the reason the business exists is if people are like, we want Arbor's expertise. We want Arbor's partnership to structure deals and source deals, underwrite them, operate them and exit them. And not that they're like, well, we're just going to use you to get to a deal and then we'll figure it out on our own. And at the end of the day, we got to make their life easier and we got to make them money. And so, so we spend a lot of time thinking about that from a structure and investment standpoint. Like 
it's pretty flexible because again, we, we try to be formal and process oriented where we need to be, but then we don't want to create bureaucracy where we don't need to. And so given that we have tight decision-making, we can sort of just be like, Hey, this is what we're thinking about and focus on that. And frankly, there's a lot of trust we put in each other. I, I mean, you can grow if people have the autonomy to kind of build their line of business and, we talk about all the big decisions together and all the major stuff is jointly and unanimously decided on. But for the most part, Sheenal's running a lot of decision-making at the management company and I'm running a lot of decision-making at the investment company. It's interesting how that works because when you're in an entrepreneurial company like yours that's scaling and growing, I think a lot of people get into the trap of like setting up these formalized things that they hear about from their institutional partners or others like investment committees and advisory councils. But then at the end of the day, even at some of those big institutional shops, it always seems to come down to like one guy's decision <laughs> yes. anyways. And how do you manage that process in your firm where you keep your acquisitions team incentivized, motivated? you kind of have these organized practices, but you're still entrepreneurial and like going back to basics on your decisions. It's a growing process. So look, a few years ago, we realized we were like trying to look at everything and everything looked interesting and everything looked exciting and we were jumping all over the place. You have to have discipline, even if it's just for your own use of time, because every deal that you're underwriting, you can't be also underwriting the other five deals that are flying by at that point. And so what we've tried to get a lot more disciplined about is just like looking for proxy data points on a deal first and foremost. So, you know, like RevPAR in the market or something like that, like that just tells us that there's like a certain level of health in the market, that there's enough demand and it's coming from different places. There's pricing power. So it's less... Because like in hotels, I don't think you can just say like, hey, here are the 20 markets we want to be in. That's similar to like some other segments of, of real estate can do. Because you could take like a bunch of secondary and tertiary markets in California that have higher rev bars than the urban cores of pretty decent sized cities in other parts of the country. Yep. So from our perspective, we just wanted to be thoughtful about where do we not have to have some everything go perfectly right? Where is their health in the market? Where is there some tailwinds? Where can we buy right? Sorry, first we're focusing there on just the market health. Then we start thinking about, can we buy this deal right? Do we like the basis? Do we like the story? And so I wouldn't say that there's like a specific like flow chart that it's like, if it doesn't do this, then you can't go to the next level. But also like Kevin, my head of acquisitions has been with us for 11 years. And so you also just start to build really strong chemistry and have a good view of like what works, what doesn't, where did we have challenges? What do we think we're going to like to do and not? And you build off of that as well. But, you know, to your comment about the investment committee, we tried that at one point and it was ridiculous because like we're this small company and Kevin usually would like just hop into my office at any time of day just to chat about a deal. And then it was like, well, are we supposed to wait till Monday or can we talk to each other now? Like, Right. When can we submit the LOI? It just seems silly. It was like, just come into my office. Let's chat about this right now. And so maybe one day if we're like way bigger than we are, we'll feel that that's necessary. But right now we definitely have pipeline meetings. We have deal meetings. We challenge each other on assumptions and underwriting. 
but it is definitely a combination of something that is fluid and happening in real time, as well as like a, like a formal sit down where we're, we're chatting about in a little bit more detail. And in your pipeline meetings, are you weeding out a whole bunch of deals or is your acquisitions team, you know, kind of, I don't know, not sandbagging, but like tightening up that pipeline where these are things that are pretty serious? It's the latter. We, again, we at one point kind of tried to just go through everything and that felt really inefficient. And so effectively what we have now is we have like sidebars and conversations regularly of like, hey, we're looking at this deal. Here are a couple of things. We chat about a little bit and it's like, eh, you know, it doesn't really feel like a right use of our time and the pricing's off or there's too much risk around, you know, franchise term, whatever it is. And so what we have now focused on the meeting is being deals that have made their way through the team. There's been some back and forth. And it's a little bit more of a deep dive kind of presentation where everybody can ask questions. And we've been doing that for a few months now, and it's been going great. I, I think our meetings are just so much more effective than they used to be. What were kind of some of the strategies that you laid out for 2023, maybe given your experience in 10, 11 or not? Is, are, are, is it a similar time or is it totally different? You know, there's similarities that there's pain in the capital stack and there's going to be repricing that's inevitable. It certainly has happened theoretically. It never really happens until you're forced to sell. And so we're not quite there yet. But the big difference is liquidity. So, you know, during the GFC and not that I had a lot to, I was new. So everything was new at that point. So I didn't really know how to compare it to other cycles. But now that I've been like doing this for a little bit, the lack of liquidity is just like jarring to think about when you think about what the last 15 years have been like. I remember seeing deals that just would keep coming over and over to us because nobody was buying them. And these were like loans that you could buy at 60 cents on the dollar. I mean, that would last like maybe two hours today. It, it just, there was just, it, you know, it was a financial driven recession. And so as a result, like all the money players were tight on money. And so it was very difficult for transactions to happen. It was pretty quiet for about a year. And then things started to like open up. And so that's that's a huge difference. So I think what's going to happen now is when you do start to see some of the repricing happening, my gut just is that a floor is going to be found really quickly. Because at some point, someone's going to be like, that bid sounds really interesting to me. That's a good basis. I like the return. And then the new cycle has kind of begun. And then everybody else starts to flood into the market because they don't want to be too late on buying something. But I would say, so back to your kind of original question, like, where are we? We're trying to be a lot more thoughtful about deals in the capital stack that are above the equity. So buying debt would be great. Not necessarily seeing a lot of that, to be honest. Seeing lots of office loans, but that's not really what we do. And so... Can you convert any offices to hotels? Is that something you're looking at? Absolutely. We're looking at it. It's tough for the most part. We've looked at a couple. The challenge there again is the ones that did work, at least for us, the basis, like the price we could offer for the office building was so light that the seller's like, well, I'm not, there's no reason for me to do that right now. Like I'll wait until the lender forces me to make that decision. And so... So our view is we, we're actually looking at trying to originate some loans because pricing is so attractive that you can like historically 
equity like returns at like last dollar basis of 65%, 70%. That sounds really good. Like why wouldn't you take that versus taking last dollar risk on on the equity uh, in some cases? And so we're focused on that right now or we're anticipating is with higher DSCR, well, higher interest rates, DSCR calculations are going to change, which inevitably means the loan you can get is going to change, which inevitably yep. means you're going to be light on proceeds. And so in some cases, like if it's an institutional owner or something like that, they'll cut the check themselves. But there's lots of deals and we're already seeing a ton of them where people have needs for gap financing, where you would come in as PREF or MES or something like that. And so we're definitely looking at that. That seems like a really interesting place to play. And that's really where we're focused. And let me caveat all that with the fact that everybody's trying to do that. These are not like unique ideas that I'm busting out. I think, you know, in the conversation with our equity partners and institutional capital folks, a lot of people see the same thing and want to play in the same place. And at some point, that's how we're going to ultimately get back to like a more stabilized valuation market because everyone's waiting to put capital out and there's not going to be enough pref and mez deals for everybody to do and then you're going to say like hey i got to take some equity risk and start buying stuff at which point we think then we're going to be looking at deals that may be for sellers guys that can't get the new loan or don't want to do the pip or whatever the case may be and that's where we hope we can be pretty active buying things at interesting pricing um we're actually even looking at some new construction right now and like you and i know each other you know that i don't we haven't dabbled in that before we've talked about it but we've got two projects we're looking at right now that just just seem really interesting relative to what else is out there i think we're finding that pricing is stabilizing a little bit on the construction side just contractors are actually returning calls now and they're saying their subs are not walking off to the next deal and so I think that just gives us a little bit more comfort about how to price a deal and what construction is going to look like. And in some of these cases, they're like structured deals. Like at this, in this type of economy and market, you got to look at like the story driven opportunities. And in this case, like one case, we've got an owner that owns some land and he kind of inadvertently ended up in the land because his partner had some trouble and he got in there and now he's trying to figure out how to monetize it. And we've gone through an exercise with them and we're like, we could build a hotel and apartment building here. And we're like, whoa, the numbers look really good. And so like, it just started to like roll from there. And now all of a sudden we're like, hey, we should do this deal together. And we're super excited about it. Well, that feels honestly a little contrarian. It is very concerning to me too, that everyone seems to have a ton of capital or partners with a ton of capital and a very similar strategy, maybe around structured equity. But at the same time, those people probably are seeing their current deal portfolio and they're like, "Mm, my cash flow sucks. I need to do a renovation. But they don't really seem like they're at the point where they're forced yet. Like you kept referring to, well, like the lender hasn't forced me to do it. Yeah. So maybe the construction is certainly an opportunity given where construction pricing was and where other asset prices values have climbed relative to hotels. Totally agree. And I think we're also seeing what's happening on the supply numbers. And it's a lot more interesting to be a new hotel amongst a few new hotels versus a new hotel amongst a lot of new hotels. And so that caught our eye as well, that if you're starting a project right now and delivering in a couple of years, that just based on the overall data and even just talking 
to friends and other colleagues in the industry, there's definitely a pullback on on projects that people are trying to get done. You mentioned the debt platform. Do you have separate capital for that from one partner and then maybe your equity is a different partner? Or is this one partner that you have that's like, hey, we love you, we'll do whatever you guys have along the capital stack? It actually started that way. Ultimately, it's looking like it's going to be with a new partner. And it will just be a debt-driven strategy that we're focused on. On the equity side, we have never done anything exclusive or programmatic on deals. We, you know, we've done a lot of repeat business with with the capital partners. Like the goal is always to do that. But given yep. the way we're, we're structured, we're able to, you know, kind of be thoughtful on a deal by deal basis and find something that works for us because we like the the metrics and the risk and the return. But it might not necessarily fit for a certain partner because it's it's too small or something. So it's not necessarily has anything to do with the deal. It just doesn't fit for them. And you can do that in like real estate buying and selling. Like that's a pretty much how most of the market works across a lot of asset classes. And so the system has been built for that. I think on the debt side, you need to be a bit more programmatic about it. And that's the approach that we've taken because you don't, as a borrower, want to show up and not have your lender not, not show up, right? And it's not like they, right. you know, not in a deal <laughs> where you just walk away from your deposit or something like that. I mean, this is kind of like one and done if you can't show up on the lender side. So for us, it's been a lot. We have spent tons of time and been way more focused on having it all perfectly in place before we're going to start doing that. Whereas, like you said, on in real estate, it's often like chicken and egg or whatever. I don't think you can do that if you're going to start originating loans. Like you got to have the you have to have it all figured out. And for that reason, it also needs to be programmatic, I think. I think it'd be hard to like deal by deal, find a new partner for each loan. So are you kind of in the process of setting up a relationship where you have some amount of authority to draw down on a line from some financial provider to then go ahead and make those loans? Yes. So we're pretty close on that right now. And, and it's basically, it's not quite just like drawing down on a line, but it's basically like a box that we all agree that we understand what we're trying to achieve, what kind of deals will work. But obviously, these guys are fiduciaries for their own LPs and their fund. Like they can't just hand it off to us. And we're not asking them to do that. I think the thought is that we'll still do it jointly, but everybody sort of gets the deal that it's got to happen quickly. And it's not like a acquisition underwriting. It's a little bit different. And so the group that we're working with has originated lots of debt before in other asset classes. So this is just like an extension of what they're already doing. But you guys are an entrepreneurial equity shop. So how do you make the economics work to make it, you don't have to give me the actual deal, but like, how do you make the economics work to make it worth your while at scale? Is there fees that you're charging that's generating that? Yeah. Yeah. And, And this type of stuff only works at scale. Because like on a one-off deal, you get, you know, you get a modest fee and that's not really worth it. Right. So I think the thought, like there's not going to be any deal where just like you originate the loan, you get paid monthly, and then it ultimately gets paid off and that that's going to be a a home run by itself. Obviously contrasting with like a real estate deal where you build a hotel and sell it for like a multiple of what you built it for. So this only works if you have a longer term strategy. And our view is that we're using this as a good entry point, but 
it's not just a special situation strategy. We would love it that even when the market is healthy and good, that we're originating debt. We just want to create that platform for it. We think it's like a good evolution of what we do. But I think that where the other opportunity lies for us is so the, what, like why are our capital partners partnering with us? They see us as the hotel expert. It gives them comfort on the underwriting of the asset, underlying value, operations, all that kind of stuff. We're also co-investing, so we're putting money at risk. And then obviously, if it does go sideways, we're ready to take over the asset. And then it sort of converts to a more traditional deal with a promote structure and things like that. So there, there you know, presumably will be a couple that go that way. But the whole goal for the program is to make loans and get paid off. It's not intended to like get to the real estate. Interesting. But you have a promote structure maybe kind of loosely in place if you do happen to get to the real estate by accident. That's right. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think that's the I whole like it. that's the whole reason the structure exists is that lenders don't want to be especially with hotels, they they know that they're little constrained at times on what they can do. It's an operating business and there's a franchise and it's not easy to just say like, "Hey, I'm going to just show up and take the keys and and run it." And I think it's smart on their part to be honest, like if it's with us or if it's with somebody else to say like, "Well, we don't want to be told what to do. We're the lender. And so if we have the the system in place so that if our borrower doesn't pay and we try to work things out and we can't get there or they run out of money or whatever it is that we ultimately need to enact our rights, we've got everything ready to go. We've got uh, the group that invested in it. They did the original underwriting. They've been monitoring the loan. They know the asset. Now that all they, you know, they'll just step in and take over. From what I'm hearing, it seems like you guys are almost exclusively focusing on institutional capital partners versus maybe where you started, which was a little bit more high net worth. Has that been very intentional? Did it evolve that way? And what do you like about the institutional partners versus syndicating deal by deal from a bunch of people? I would say that actually, yes, that has happened. And there was some intentionalness to it. Uh, but we are also evolving past that as well, because it, it, it depends on where you are in the market. And right now, institutional capital is not very active. They've got a box that they have to to fit in, and they tend to work in lockstep with other institutional capital. And so like, if everybody is kind of sitting on the sideline, it's hard to be an outlier and suddenly go out there and start doing deals. And so, and and we saw that in other market dislocations. And so actually the groups that we're talking to now are, are kind of more family offices and multifamily offices. And we don't have like a specific, like, pro or con on why we want to work with them at any time. We just try to find the right capital for the right deal. Obviously, the benefits of institutional capital is that the scalability is amazing, right? Like we've got partners that we did one deal with, and then now we own like seven hotels with. There's no limit on the capital. They can just keep going because they're huge. And so that is always exciting to be able to do bigger and chunkier deals that just get too big for syndications or individuals and things like that. And frankly, I have to admit, like going through hard times has been good with institutional capital partners. Like going through COVID, we, I feel like they were like pretty unemotional about it. They were really thoughtful. It was a really great partnership of working together and trying to figure out a a solution and not like 
you know, just like freaking out or pointing fingers and things like that. And not to say that individual investors are like that, but obviously the less of a organization you are and the more of an individual you are, the easier it tends to be to sort of just like go with emotion or go shoot from the hip on things. And so, and also what we don't like and what, you know, why we moved from syndications a long time ago too, is that either we were making all the decision completely by ourselves, or we were supposed to get like 50 people to agree on something, not, not (laughs) by legal document perspective, but it sort of felt like that. Whereas in these joint ventures, it's just us and our partner. And it feels like we can be really thoughtful about what the right decision is. And even with like our family office partners or kind of like syndicator partners, they deal with all the investors behind the scene. And we just have a single partner that we deal with. Like that's, and we've done a lot of deals with those type of partners. And and in fact, we're looking at deals with those type of partners right now, because frankly, they are a bit more open to doing deals right now, if it's interesting and if there's return versus getting like overly... I don't know, technical about it for lack of better term. I think they they basically are willing to see a story even when it feels a little uneasy right now. They're, they're not, I find that those type of investors don't need to have like the perfect timing on a deal. And are you meeting those multifamily offices or syndicator shops on the street? Are you talking to them about a specific deal or are you trying to seek them out through other means, build a relationship, build a relationship so that when you have a deal, you're ready to go to them. You know exactly what they're looking for. More of that. You know, it's rare that the first time we show a deal to a new investor that the deal happens. I'm kind of trying to think back if that's actually ever happened. There's some it's tough. some partners we talked to for eight years before we got our first deal done. So it's so much about building trust and chemistry. On the debt side, we've used tons of intermediaries and gotten lots of value out of the you know, the brokerage shops, big or small, because that is a bit more of a commoditized world, right? Like you, you do want to build a relationship with your lender. You do want to have that chemistry. But at the end of the day, you pay your mortgage and they are happy and they leave you alone. I think on equity, it's marriage. And you are going through the ups and downs so much more acutely. Like you are feeling it and talking it regularly that we have never used an intermediary for equity because to me, it's just so important to know that you're with the right partner. We have had deals that we had multiple options to do. And we took a worse economic deal because we just really felt good about the partner and just felt like we had a good relationship there. And obviously, we haven't batted a thousand on that. But I can at least sincerely say that was a big part of why we decided to partner with somebody versus just using somebody that brings us a bunch of term sheets and treats all the capital the same. I think that's hard to do on equity. I think that is, and I think it's short-sighted. I think it, I think it's really important to be focused on, I mean, sort of becoming friends. Like a lot of our partners, I, I, you know, I'm not going to claim we're best friends, but I think we're very friendly. Like when we see each other, we like each other's company. We enjoy hanging out. We're not always just talking about business. And that has been just very healthy for the overall way that we do business. And when you're going to set up these relationships, are you trying to get to the head of the firm or are you really comfortable in trusting your relationship person that might not be the head, but knowing that they're going to show up? Well, I guess what I'm really trying to ask is, 
Are you structuring things with these single source capital partners where you know when the you have to go hard or the deal is going to close that they're going to be there? Or is it kind of just a handshake? We always get in writing. <laughs> so we have them participate in pursuit costs, absolutely pursue, uh, participate in the deposit. They need to go non-refundable and take risk when we take risk. And that is sort of like a non-negotiable for us. And our partners get that. And we haven't really gotten pushback on it, to be honest. We've had a couple partners in the early days that were like, well, you know, we'll sign the term sheet, but this is your deal. You're the one taking the risk. And when it's ready to go, we'll, we'll show up. And we just were not comfortable with that. We were like, yeah, I mean, yes, it's our deal. But at this point, it's our deal. And there's economics for us for finding and st structuring and putting the deal together and coming up with the business plan. But at this point, we're selecting you to be our partner on this journey, and we should be taking risks together. And I, I generally have found that at least on the institutional side, they all get that. They think that that is you know, market standard, and that's the way that it should go. And so, and that's how we get comfort, right? Because I would never want to be in a position where I've gone non-refundable on a loan and I don't have at least a term sheet that says like, I know where the capital is coming from. That's pretty. Does that tend to be parry pursue or are you splitting that like 50-50, the pursuit cost, the deposit? So what tends to happen often is that the pursuit costs net of the deposit will be 50-50. The deposit can often be 50-50, but in some cases, like for really big deals, we've been able to have the fund take a bigger chunk of it just because when you just look at it on raw dollars, it's just, it's it's a big number. <laughs> so, I, I'm not doing yeah, this. Sorry. Exactly. <laughs> I want to move to the management company because what I've seen you build is quite impressive. And it seems like you're now viewing the management business, not as a tool for the investment side, but as an as its own standalone business. At, at what point did you start thinking about it that way where it's like, oh, we have like an actual management company that is valuable. And then we have an investment business that potentially is valuable as well. That's so funny because that's exactly how it happened. I don't remember the moment, but it was just like, oh, I guess that's actually, we, we built the business and we didn't really realize it. Like we always just thought of it all like it's just like one big blob and it was all together. And culturally, that's how the company works together. Like, you know, we all sit together amongst each other, acquisitions, capital markets, whatever it is. But at some point we were just like, you know, we're building expertise. We built this amazing team. And this management company has like real IP to it because like, there's this know-how and this knowledge and just like the way that we approach things that is proprietary and unique. And we've been trying to focus more on that, even from like a tech side or a way that we do things of like, we don't want the pitch, which often is the case in management, which is we're just better. And so we always just are like, well, that guy's an idiot. So we're that's gonna... everyone's pitch, by exactly. the way, Exactly, we're going to run it better than that guy. And so that's obviously our like still a, a focus of our pitch and we try to back that up but we're also focusing a lot on like what are some things from other ways of like technology or the way we're structured or whatever it is that someone's going to say I can only get that if I'm with Arbor and that's really important to us and that's been a big focus for the last year or so 
but yeah, I don't remember the exact moment, but it just happened at some point where we were just like, this is pretty cool. We've got something that, you know, we don't really necessarily think of it as a value separately, but we just think of it as more of like, Hey, this is like something that can stand on its own along that way even became something of like, Hey, it's not like we're going to just manage our own assets. But at this point we have four third-party management contracts as well. And that's the new line of business for us. But we had all the major food groups. We had all the people, we had all the infrastructure. It's pretty easy to apply that to other assets as well. And so I think owners have seen that. And it, it always felt a little cliche to me to be like, well, we're a management company that thinks like an owner but I do think it makes a difference. Like I'm starting to like, maybe I'm just drinking my own Kool-Aid, but like, I do think that it makes a difference. And I feel like the, the clients see it and they've even stated that, that they can see that we think about stuff or ask questions about certain things that are a little different than just trying to figure out how to like maximize revenue. And as a result, maximize fees. Yeah, it's gotta be a competitive advantage. I mean, I'm seeing it now that there's some management companies that have gotten so big Maybe at a time they owned hotels and they were an owner, but now really they're just a management company and the people and the culture of that company don't really have anything to do with ownership other than working for an owner. And that probably is an opportunity for firms like yours and mine to grow. Absolutely. And and we noticed that because a lot of the folks that we have on our team came from large management companies and spent an entire career at third-party management companies. And there is like that 10% differential. They come in and they hit the ground running, right? They know how to run hotels. They know all the major things. But there is a little mind shift that is required as a part of like being indoctrinated to the Arbor way of thinking like an owner, which I didn't really, again, I didn't give enough credit to until we started to see it in conversation of like people just like, I mean, some of this stuff was just like, I remember a guy we had a long time ago saying that he didn't realize we needed to focus on the bottom line. Like that sounds insane, right? <laughs> but he was at yep. a management company and his guys were like, we got to just get our fees. Like we got to get revenues up. And it was just like such a shocking comment to hear, but he he was just quoting what he had been told from somewhere else. Wow, you should use that as your next sales right. pitch for a new management <laughs> <Exactly>. deal. Exactly. <laughs> so I remember where I was when I realized that like these management companies are going to start having values. When one of my friends told me that they were selling their company and what they were selling it for, I'm like, oh, like yes, I guess it is a real oh, going I think concern. I'm, I think I was with you when that happened. So maybe that was the moment. <laughs> it was probably the moment for you. It was a light bulb moment. Like, what am I yeah. doing? Damn. Is there anything that would surprise the listeners that, and maybe even yourself 10 years ago, thinking back on it, that you're doing in your corporate team and your management company, whether it's technology or strategy, that you're kind of just like, damn, that's, that's pretty cool. Ooh, that's a tough one. Well, you know, I do think that we are doing some stuff on the BI side. We're not quite there yet, but we're working on incorporating some AI into some decision-making around, particularly around staffing. Uh, It sounds kind of straightforward and we have sort of like a a way of doing things and approaching it, but it's super time uh, intensive and it takes a person to be sitting there and scrubbing 
you know, staffing schedules and, and like rearranging and all that stuff. And so we're actually working on something right now that we would be able to just basically make that press a button and it, and it like realigns everything for you. And so when that gets completed, that's going to be super exciting. I think that's, again, that's going to be in line with what we were talking about of like trying to do something proprietary for Arbor, that that's going to be a way that we think we're going to find efficiencies where we've been beta testing it. It's actually been quite successful. So we want to get it to a place where we can just roll it out everywhere and say that that's like our proprietary technology. And that would be pretty cool. So on BI, now that you have such a big company with so many hotels in this platform, what tools do you use or, or meetings process to feel like you have really a good pulse on the business, maybe on a weekly or monthly basis? Yeah. So it's got to be a combination of things. I think that you know, you can't do it all in meetings and you can't do it all just in reports because, you know, we have 40 hotels now. And when the spreadsheets come, I look at them, but it's like things just get lost. And then I'm just like, you forget to even look like a week later, you look at it and you're like, wait, that asset did that. I didn't even realize that. And so it's hard. Right. And so I think that even with the data, you're thoughtful about how you organize it and, and how it flows. And so that like it is aligned with the way you're thinking about things and prioritizing things. And so that you're spending those meetings focused on the right assets. Cause there's no reason to spend 45 minutes of a meeting talking about the asset that's crushing it. You should be talking about the one that's have, obviously having challenges. And so we've incorporated a, basically a third party software that layers on top of what we're getting out of our accounting systems and out of our property management systems. And you as a hotel operator know this, like the challenge with the hotel business is these operating systems have these massive firewalls. And so they can't really integrate very well with other it's the worst. systems. If you're it's operating on Hilton and Marriott, it's just, it's a process. Exactly. And so we had to find something that tried to ease that a little bit. I really wish it was like something that just sat on top of something else and you press the button and everything came out. But we are, we're definitely producing a lot more on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis just so that everybody has a bit more of a pulse. We have four big TV screens up in the lobby of our office right now that I'm looking at that have numbers from like guest satisfaction to internal scorecards that we create for our properties so that people can see how everybody is doing and how they're doing relative to one another. And so we try to like just have more transparency around data and information we have everybody come in once a quarter to talk about performance and talk about specific metrics. And we have people organized into what are called pods. And so we're trying to align interests of folks in operations and HR and accounting and sales where they are kind of being held accountable as a pod together versus just like someone in revenue management saying like, oh, that's a sales issue or that guy saying it's an operations issue. Now we're together. And it's cool to see the questions that are asked, right? Like now in one of the meetings, we had like a revenue manager asking questions about expenses on the operations side. Like that never happened before. And I think that aligned has been really positive, but it's a combination of both. And, and I think it's also like, you just need the right team to synthesize that information. For me personally, I obviously have my co-founder running the management business. So he's not involved in any of the deal stuff I'm talking about. He's like in the weeds on the operation side. I have an amazing asset manager. He runs the asset management side of our business. He's like the nexus point between 
the deal side and the operation side and our investors and all that kind of stuff. And so he is like someone I interact pretty regularly with about synthesizing information and trying to be thoughtful about it because there's certain things we think about at 30,000 feet that our ops team doesn't, and they don't necessarily need to, but like if we're gearing up to sell a hotel or we're gearing up for refinancing, there's certain things that are going to just be like, we can't we, like, you we have to prime like, get that figured PNL, out baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <Yep. laughs> and so you just have to be a lot more thoughtful about that type of stuff. And so you need people in like key positions around the company so that it's not just like one guy trying to remember all of that. I've never heard of that pod concept really before in, in hotel management. So are those organized based on a certain region or might a pod have hotels from diverse locations and brand type? It's generally region that will also try to align on brand just because obviously there's some synergies from that perspective. But I would say like from a priority standpoint, the first item, if I kind of thinking through the pods, it's generally by region first and foremost, because that's how our directors of operations are are broken up. They're, they're generally broken up by region as well. And then, you know, some people are part of a couple of different pods, right? Because it's not like we have for certain roles, it's not like we have 10 of those people or whatever it is. And so some of them are are kind of involved in a couple of things and there's a little bit of overlap. But generally we like the whole team concept of it. It just feels like even the internal meetings they're running and things like that, it's not just, you know, every revenue manager in the company and every accounting person in the company all sitting on the same meeting. It just felt really inefficient. So now we're finding that we're finding a lot more efficiencies around kind of just like your group of hotels and it's the same hotels you're talking about regularly. So you're at the office, you know, there's this hybrid work thing. I heard a joke the other day. It's like a hybrid engine you're on or you're off, they're not really working from home. With those pods, are you making people like, I don't know, maybe they're all in, maybe there are some not there, but do they come in and meet regularly? How do you manage that in today's environment? Yeah, so given that it's hotel operations, there's a lot of virtual meeting, but that was happening even before the whole work from home thing because we're technically four days a week in the office, but all these team members are, you know, some of them are remote. They're already working regionally. You know, like we have a person based out of California. And just by example, we have people around the country for that. Just historically in the business, revenue managers have tended to be folks that work from home and we're no different. So we have that as well. And people are always traveling. Like I, even before COVID, I would joke that we basically had everybody in the office, in the office, basically like, four times a year and they were all mandated group events. Like it was like team building or the holiday party. And, and the, <laughs> otherwise, like, otherwise you had like at best, like 80% or something like that. And so I, I think now it's the same. You know, we have those quarterly meetings that everybody in the entire company comes to Chicago and has to be in the office for those Including of property people or is that just corporate people? Just corporate people. And so we, we do, you know, like when we have G- GMs come on board, we do the onboarding in Chicago. So there's things like that, that we do to have that connectivity to the office and so that they can meet everybody in the corporate office as well. But, like uh, but yeah, for everything else, like it's mostly a lot of virtual stuff. I want to transition to something that you just slipped in there. And you said you're in the multifamily business now during COVID 
there were two main things that were buzzwords once people started to climb out and invest again. One, I think, was this like sense of like outdoor glamping, camping, RV, you know, Airstream trailer kind of build a little cabin in the woods and call it a hotel. The other thing that everyone was talking about was converting hotels into multifamily. I don't think the latter materialized as much as everyone would have thought. Maybe that has more to come, but you are one of the people that have actually been doing hotel to multifamily conversion. So tell us like how you find those deals, how you think about them, what the criteria is, and what it's been like going over to multifamily. Yeah. So look, we've thought about it for a while about wanting to be in the multifamily space, but one of the decisions we made early on in the business is, and I mentioned this earlier, is that I deeply believe hotel is a expert-driven field. And so our view was that if we wanted to build a business and build an investor base and build credibility, we had to become hotel experts. And that's hard to say that when you're doing a bunch of different other things. And so for 15 years, we were exclusively hotel. We saw interesting things. We never got distracted. We always just focused on hotel. And that's all we did. Although we always thought it was interesting and we figured one day maybe we'll do it. And COVID hit and there was a couple of things that drove it. So one, I'm sitting in like March of 2020 and I'm like, man, maybe I don't want to be 99.9% correlated to hotel. This is really rough right now. And you and I were on a lot of those conversations slash Weekly calls. Therapy, yep. therapy sessions. And so it felt like, hey, this is a good catalyst to say we should be thinking about other things that we could do and do well. And at that point, we kind of stepped back and we we're like, we've been doing this for 15 years. We've had you know, a decent level of success. I don't think anybody can challenge us anymore that we don't know the hotel business and that we don't know operations and we don't know what we're doing here. So we felt like we had the confidence to now start thinking about other things because we didn't have to necessarily like prove ourselves on that side anymore. And so as we stepped back and started thinking about it, we were just like, look, we're like, we're tiny. Like the hotel industry is tiny compared to multifamily. I think like last year or pre-COVID, it was like 30 billion of transaction in hotels and there's 300 billion of transaction volume in multifamily. So it's just, a, it's a big, big industry, lots of people. And we can't just show up and be like, hey, suddenly we're like, you know, we know everything and we're going to compete. And frankly, when we saw, heard about how deals are trading, I mean, it was insane, right? Like you're going non-refundable immediately. You're closing in 15 days. And so three, cap. yeah, three caps, right? So we were just trying to be thoughtful, like how can we do this in a meaningful way or otherwise let's not do it. And so then we were like, all right, maybe this is the right time to start thinking about hotels to convert. And clearly we knew and heard other people were kicking the tires and thinking about the strategy. Most people were focused from what we could see on like gen one extended stay hotels where it's just like a paint and carpet job and you throw it back on the market and you start renting out studios. And obviously that would sounds great. And the two things that were difficult on that strategy were, one, those deals got picked over pretty quickly. And two, that was like the one segment in hotels that did halfway decent. So you can really buy that stuff at pennies on the dollar. And and so like the the overall thesis like became a challenge. So then is we started the thinking third about like, zoning 
Or does that, sorry to interrupt, but is the third oh, yeah. zoning or does that not actually materialize oh, z- zoning into for sure. a problem? Z- zoning for sure. I kind of guess I think of that as just like such a, you know, a gating item. Like you're not even looking at the deal. We're not taking zoning risk on our deals. We're looking for, we'll take change of use risk based on due diligence with the city and things like that. But we need to at least know that multifamily is a approved use. So... So then we started thinking about these big behemoth full service hotels and w- that were just dying a slow death, frankly. Like they built as like the hottest, coolest new hotel 40 years ago as a Marriott, as a Sheraton, and they just kept getting down, brand flagged. And I'll be nice and not mention flag names, but they were, you know, you know which one ones starts that- <laughs> with a D and ends with an A. Yeah. yeah. Also exactly. rhymes with an airline. <laughs> <laughs> so. And, that, and that's the thing is like, those are your options, right? Like either you stay this rough brand, maybe you get into Marriott, but you spend 40, 50 a key to become a Delta. That's a challenge, right? Like that's a lot of money to spend. And so we thought that that was an interesting place to, to target. And what we found is a lot of multifamily guys who tended to do like easier type of deals would walk into these super tankers and be like, Oh my God, like I can't do this. And would like walk straight out. Like it was just like too big of a project. But if you've been renovating hotels and we've done hotels of that scale, you're kind of used to it. And you know what the right working group is to like, think about mechanicals and systems and all that kind of stuff. And so that's really kind of how the thesis came together. And at the end of the day, getting deals done means getting access to deals and access to deals means being networked and knowing the right people and getting into the right place. And if I showed up at trying to buy market rate multifamily deals, I'm the new guy on the block. And these brokers, like, why would they take a... Like, I remember the new guy on the block on the hotel side, and it was hard to convince brokers to take the risk on us and convince their sellers to work with us. And so our thought was, well, let's go where we have goodwill already built, which are is with the hotel brokers, and let's find deals that need to find a home and that we could potentially be a good buyer on. And that's kind of how we got into it. So, you know, we, we have a deal under renovation in Denver right now. I was just there earlier this week. Framing is up for the units. It's really cool to see and exciting that that's coming along. Um, that's a 450 room hotel. We're converting to 330 apartment units. And how does that work? Is that like mostly studio? Like how do you, how do you divide up the rooms? Like what is the kind of framework you look like to say, hey, this is going to work now that you've done them? I mean, it's certainly driven by market. And then it's also driven by what we think, how we think it's going to be affected on a sale. So what there's not a super deep history on full studio buildings being sold as apartment buildings. And so like all these Gen 1 assets we're talking about that are getting converted, they're all studios and they generate income and that's fine. But what we found is like some of the institutional buyers aren't buying those because they just haven't seen them in circulation long enough. But they're financeable, they're selling, they're still good value. We would certainly do that deal. I think in a deal of this size and this scale, and we have a large institutional capital partner in it, we were really focused on trying to make it look and feel as much like a traditional new build apartment building as possible, which meant that it needed to have more of a market rate type of mix of units. And so there's probably a heavier weighting on studios than normal, but it is workforce housing. So this it's actually a good thing and that's what's in demand. But we also have a 
ton of one bedrooms and a decent number of two bedrooms as well. And so that I would say for a lot of hotel conversions is not the norm. I would say a lot of guys that are kicking the tires and underwriting deals are just assuming that like, hey, it's 450 room hotel, it's going to be a 450 unit apartment building. And to us, like that was hard in that at that scale, that felt like a lot of studios to rent out. It's a lot of wear and tear on the building because that's 450 separately habitated units, right? And so yep. to us, like at the end of the day, we wanted the right mix of of like kind of people in that building. And we thought that like this would make it the most institutional upon a sale. But every deal is different, right? Like if it was only 150 units, we may have just done all studios, to be honest. And what do you do with the, you know, these are big oil tankers, like you described. What do you do with the ballrooms, the meeting rooms, you know, the big kitchens, the lobby? Yeah, what do you do with cool. all those spaces? Like it's actually, it's, it's pretty fun. I mean, it's like super white space, creative type of experience. And so the sales office tends to become the leasing office. That's already kind of in the right spot. And, you know, it's like one of the few offices that has glass walls and windows and stuff like that. We already have a great like oversized gym. We have a pool. These are amenities you're generally not finding in say like our main competitors, which are like garden style 1970s vintage apartments. So you've got some of these amenities that are already there that we're just like cleaning up or enhancing. Actually, in some of the spaces, we're adding units. So we have a ton of meeting space in this building and a, a bunch of it had great window lines. And so we're actually building in units that are going to be like super, super nice at the end of the day. Wow. And so we're able to add inventory as a result of that. And then we have like a community center. So it, this deal we're doing with the fund that has a super high ESG focus, which is like really important to us as well. So we actually have a third party called Project Access that comes in and, and works with community members on education and health and things like that. And they're actually like based out of the building for that. And then we'll have like a, a more like just community center for people to interact. We're looking at putting in a sport court, a dog park, like all sorts of stuff that kind of as the budget, as we get closer to finalization and we kind of see what we have to play with, we're going to add some of these other amenities as well. And I don't know if you know off the top of your head, but like in a market like Denver, what does that end up costing per unit to convert? You know, I don't know that off the top of my head, so I wouldn't want to quote a number that doesn't make sense. But it's definitely all in. We're less than what replacement cost would be to like go build brand new. Wow. This was fun. Yeah, same here. I have a traditional closing question that I've been asking all my guests and excluding your portfolio, maybe including, what is your favorite hotel? Oh, I wish you had prepared me. That's a tough question. Well, you know, the podcast, you got to listen to it. <laughs> we haven't launched yet. So in all fairness, like you wouldn't know this. I wouldn't but... have known that. That's right. Oh, man. I love hotels in general. I love staying at nice hotels. And so I've stayed at lots of great ones. I'll tell you one recently. It was great. It gets great reviews, but it wowed me even more was the Grand Hyatt in Kauai. And I've stayed at like hotels that I think are technically supposed to be nicer and fancier, but that place just has like a sense of place to it that like when you're there, you're just happy. And it, it just like you, everything just feels right. And I think if you can do that as a hotel, like 
that is, I mean, that's the holy grail, right? Like if somebody just is happy being there, you don't have to point to guest service. You don't have to point to all these things. It's just that the whole mix, the recipe comes together and you just don't want to leave. That's a good thing. And and my entire family, like, you know, my wife, three boys, we were all there and we were just like, this place is amazing. So when you want to return to a hotel and I'm a guy that wants to go somewhere new every time I travel, I would say they did something right. And I can't wait to go back there. Awesome. Thanks for joining me on Masters of Moments, my friend. Thanks for having me. Good seeing you. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Mm-hmm.